Church family, it's good to see you. Our week's been wild. I'm not sure about yours. We've got the entire in-law side of my family currently living in our house and uh, because we lost power and went to their house and then they lost power and then our power came back and we all made it back to our house. So it's been a wild week. Uh, as we come to the text today, church family, I want, I want you to imagine, uh, imagine a world, imagine living in a world uh, where you are passed over for a promotion at your job because you refuse to deal in some of the shady, gray, and unethical ways your superiors would like you to, to further the company. Imagine a world where maybe you're fired from a job, or maybe you're a student and you lose a starting spot on your team, or maybe a spot in uh, the band because you dared answer the question when asked that you believe marriage is between one biological male and one biological female for life till death does you part. Imagine a world where you are charged with assault and and prosecuted for preying on the street. Imagine a world where you record your testimony of how Jesus saved you and delivered you from sin, and next thing you know, you and those who interviewed you are being prosecuted by the federal government because of what Jesus did in your life. Imagine essentially a world in where your basic ability to live and move and breathe, to provide for your family is under assault due to those who are powerful and influence and lead culture and society actively standing in opposition to you both because of and even in spite of the faith that you hold to. It's not that hard to imagine a world like that because every example I gave you I just ripped from various news headlines. The question for us, church family, is how do we respond to that? How do we live and move and breathe with hope rather than depression and gloom in such a world? How do we live and move and breathe with faithfulness rather than compromise, capitulation, and conformity? How do we live and move and breathe with a peacefulness and tranquility rather than a spirit of retaliation and retribution? The question in front of us as we come to the text today, church family, is how do we respond and live in a world where we are going to suffer and face opposition in unjust ways that we don't have the ability to push back against. And James's concern as we come to this text, as we look at this, and we looked at part of it last week, and we'll go back through it in a second, James's concern is deeply that we're able to live and move in such a way in responding to suffering and hardship that when we stand before the Lord, the Lord deals with us in a way that is positive, that the judgment of our life is something that is positive where we know and experience the joy of who He is, and not where we cross the line into responding in a way that would place us in a position of having acted wrongly and having to know then His hand of discipline. So I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, we're back in James, the book of James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible or uh, maybe your, your, your phone's too distracting, please invite you to use the Pew Bible in, in front of you. You can see the page number on the screen. We're back, at, sorry, not James 4, we're in James 5. James 5. Now, I'm going to start back at verse 1. We walked through 1 through 6 last week, but we're going to start back with with 1 and read through that so you understand where we're going today. Here's here's what James writes. It says, "'Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you. It will consume your flesh like fire. It is in these last days that you have stored up treasure. Remember, James is writing to a group of believers who have been driven out of their homes by persecution for their faith. They're living scattered abroad, both in, in, in the regions around Jerusalem and Judea, but some even further than that in the surrounding regions. They're having to pick back up the pieces of their lives. Uh, some of them uh, in their jobs, so what, what we know is they're facing hardship. There's been a theme of suffering throughout all of James's letter. And he writes now, and if you remember last week, he's addressing the rich. He doesn't specify if it's the rich as those who are rich and don't know the Lord and are, are outside the church, or if perhaps some of those rich might claim to know the Lord and, and be inside the church, he doesn't say, but he says this. He says, those of you who are rich, those of you who are the wealthy, the powerful, the, the ones who are in charge, you need to understand everything you have sought, everything you have placed your value and identity in, those things are crying out against you right now in judgment. You need to not be doing what you're doing. We'll see that in a second. You need to not be doing what you're doing but you need, you need to be weeping and howling because there is a judgment that is coming upon you for your sin. We say, what is that sin? Well, let's remember what it says last week. Look back. It says, in these last days, you've stored up your treasure. In the days you should be living in a, under the awareness and knowledge of God's salvation, you've instead hoarded. It says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It says, not only have you hoarded, but the money you've hoarded is because you have people who are working for you and you've defrauded them their rightful pay. And it now cries out and their cries have reached the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, the one who is coming. It says, you've lived luxuriously on the earth and lived a life of want and pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, so you've stolen their pay, you've hoarded it, and you are, are living just for your own pleasure, for whatever you want, whatever, whatever pleases you, whatever, uh, whatever tickles your emotions, whatever your desire or appetite says, you're going after it with no concern for the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the people that are around you, the people you've wronged. And he says this, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. And when it says you have condemned, it's a word that refers to taking someone to court and legally prosecuting them. So there is some, some inference there that whoever these individuals are, they clearly are business owners and likely in their context, they own the land, the farms that, that the workers are working. They've got great wealth, they're hoarding it, they're spending it on whatever they want, and they have some power and influence over what legal system is there, such that they are actively persecuting these believers. Now, in all of there, it doesn't say that, that these believers are necessarily being persecuted for their faith. It's, it's, and we know that that was true in that day and age. It could also be that they're simply victims of, 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 of oppression because those who are in power want more of what they want and they, no one's going to stop them, no one's going to check them because they run the show. 
But in that whole passage, and last week we looked at, on one hand, as we, as we live in a world where you have a, an influential, powerful, wealthy group of people that stand opposed to what we know to be true, and on one hand, while we face opposition, there is something about in the culture we live where we look at those people and we, we want to be like them and we want to wear what they wear, we want to drive what they drive, we want to go the places they go, we want to model our lives, whether we're a teenager looking at a superstar or an adult looking in the business world. There's an envy that can creep up and we can desire it. That's what we looked at last week. But I want you to remember the primary purpose of that passage is to say this as he's writing to the church and where we're going today. He says, you need to be sure these who are in power, these who are moving in this way, these who are controlling, these at whose hands you are suffering, their judgment is sure. The Lord of hosts, God Almighty, He has heard your prayer. He has heard your cry, and His judgment is on the way. Now, it's in light of that that He says this. Look with me, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. So right off the bat, he says, in light of this, in light of the fact, church family, that those who seem to run and influence culture, those at whose hands you are suffering, and and, and realize for these believers, they're out there working, they're not getting their pay, that suffering is coming home to the dinner table. It's impacting the most fundamental way they live and move and breathe in life. He says, you understand, the Lord of hosts has heard The judgment is sure, it's already coming. He says, in light of this truth, therefore, be patient. Be patient. Now, this is an interesting word. We already know uh, in James at the beginning, he talks about enduring. Blessed is the one who endures trials. And that word endure is a word that means to bear up under assault. Maybe it's the mental picture in your mind of, of, uh, of gale force winds blowing against you, but you leaning forward and not giving up, not letting them push you back, but in the face of that opposition, you stand firm, you move forward. That's what that word endure means. It's not what the word patience here means. It certainly involves that. Patience involves that, but the the word patience here is is an interesting word. It speaks to being even tempered and tranquil in spirit while waiting and enduring trying circumstances. It speaks to, to in the face of personal provocation where people are personally taking attacks at you rather than responding rashly, emotionally, and coming back blow for blow, you respond with tranquility and peacefulness. It is not a word that is common in the Greek language because it is not a virtue that is valued in secular society. But interestingly enough, it is the very word that describes God when He says He is not slow, but He is patient with the sinfulness and wickedness of humanity, which is at the heart of God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ rather than when we sin, just obliterating the whole human race. He says, be patient. He says it in, in, in a tense in, in the Greek language that is, 
There's no stronger, more urgent way to appeal in the face of your suffering, brothers and sisters, in the face of the opposition you are experiencing personally, in the face of all of it, because God, it is not lost on God. He sees and he's going to address it with his righteous judgment. In the face of all of it, be patient. Don't dilly-dally. Don't play around with, with, with vengeance. Be patient, and he gives an example. Be patient like the farmer. Like the farmer, the farmer has a job. He goes out, he sows the seed, he plants the seed into the ground. There's things that he does to attend to that seed, but ultimately, that seed, the precious crop of that plant is, is dependent upon factors the farmer cannot control. If anything we learned this week, not one of us controls the weather. And the weatherman, and I don't say this rudely to, we, to, to, to weatherman, but weatherman's the only job where you can be wrong the overwhelming majority of the time and be a really good at it. Because you can't control the weather. Likewise, the farmer, the farmer can't predict that the seed has to have the early rains and the late rains. The, father can't, the, the, the farmer can't predict when it's coming or how it's gonna happen, but he's marked, it says, the farmer waits and is patient. There is, a, there is a patience, same word as what we just described, and that word for waiting, there is a, a willingness to, to wait with an expectancy of knowing what's going to happen. And so the farmer faithfully attends to that seed. Meanwhile, he waits on factors outside of his control to produce what is good. In the face of our suffering, there are things we can control. We can control how we respond and how we react. We can be faithful to sow the seeds of righteousness. There are things we can be faithful to do, but there are going to be, reality is there are going to be situations where you experience personal opposition. Maybe you personally, it may be us collectively. There are going to be those moments and there are going to be times when the opposition you face, there is no way for you to bring about the correction or the justice that is needed. And like the farmer, rather than prematurely going out and fretting and pulling up the crops, you wait with patience. You bear up under provocation. And you don't just be patient, but notice what's connected to be patient, not forever, until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. Why until the coming of the Lord? Because when the Lord returns is the point where suffering ceases. When the Lord returns, that's the point where justice will reign in full. It's the point where those who are righteous will be vindicated. It's the point where faithfulness will be rewarded. It's the point where all wickedness will be justly and satisfyingly dealt with permanently says, you be patient. Don't jump ahead. Or, or to quote how, how Paul will say it in Romans, is do not take revenge into your own hands. Leave room for the Lord's wrath. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. So do not return evil for evil, but return evil with good. You can't return evil with good if you're not grounded in living out patience. Here's the reality, church family. There is a real temptation when we face personal suffering and opposition. There's a real temptation to respond in a hasty anger. 
an explosive reaction. There's a real temptation to, to meet that, that personal attack, to meet that injustice with equal resounding force, blow for blow. Yet the command is to patience. The command is gonna mean, church family, not allowing the wickedness of the world to bend our hearts to a place of bitterness and vengeance. It's going to mean resting in the reality of Jesus' judgment, which will be executed when He returns. And it means that we live with a steadfast peacefulness in the fact that He will come, He will repay, He will deal with it. And so whether you're an adult, whether you're a kid, whether you're a student, reality is you're going to face people who are going to oppose you, who are going to wrong you because of your faith in Christ. You're going to face people who are going to oppose you and wrong you not for your faith in Christ, but because they don't like your hair color or because they don't like the shirt you wore because there's a million different reasons you and I can face the same situation that these believers are facing, but our response must be one of patience that leaves room for the Lord to work His righteous judgment, not our personal vengeance. Now, having said that, we want to be clear. There's two extremes we could fall to. It does not mean if somebody commits a crime against you, you don't report it. Someone assaults you, well, I'm just going to be patient. No. If someone assaults you, if you call me and say, Pastor, someone assaulted me, I'm just, I'm, I'm, but I'm being patient, I'm going to say, you're dumb, call the cops. And if you won't call the cops, I'm calling the cops. If there is the means to report crime to proper authorities, we report it. That's what God established proper government for, according to Scripture. Now, there may come a time when even the government turns its back on what God established it for, and there's not even the means to report crimes. There's nations like that in this world today. And then we will, even in those moments, have to learn patience on an even new level. But if someone commits a crime, it doesn't mean we don't report it. It equally doesn't mean this. It does not mean, the idea of patience here is not some fatalistic resignation. Well, I'm just, it's just my lot. I'm just going to suffer. You know, what all, to where all of a sudden you either become utterly, utterly despondent and depressed about the wickedness you're facing, or you go the other side and you just become apathetic. Ah, the world's wicked, but you know, just, just I'm being patient. No, you're not. You just don't care. This doesn't speak to not caring. In fact, some would define this term as a militant patience. It's something where I'm actively, as I face and see injustice and wickedness in this world, and as it brings a response of righteousness to go, this is wrong. It's got to stop. It means that when we say it's got to stop, we don't lash out and take it into our own hands. Church family, if we ever arrive to a point where suffering, sorrow, where, where the tragedies of this world, where true and injustice and oppression, where it doesn't do anything to our spirit, we've got other problems we need to look at because it does something to the heart and spirit of God, which is why we can be patient, because he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is a just God who will deal with the issue. Now, here's the reality, though. It means we're going to face the agony of wickedness, 
But we're going to have to endure with a tranquility rooted in the fact that Jesus is coming back to set it right. But that's not going to be possible if our hearts are weak, double-minded, or inconsistent, which is why he says this. Look back with me. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. He says this, here's the next command, strengthen your hearts. It's a word that means to confirm, to establish something, to root something. It speaks to a determination, to a steel-like resolve. That person has nerves of steel. It means to establish and resolve yourself in something. It is the same verb that is used in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus sets his face, he confirms in his heart to go to Jerusalem to the cross. And nothing, no opposition, none of, none of his disciples going, no way, Lord, you're, we're not gonna let you go and die a horrifically horrible death. We're, none of it could stop him because he resolved in his heart. It means strengthen your hearts. It's going to be hard to be patient, church family, if, if, we are, if we are fluctuating back and forth between doubt or is, is God really going to do what he says? Will God really handle this? This has gone on for years and, and still this person, this person hasn't changed or this, this, it seems like this person continues to prosper and prosper and prosper even though it's blatantly clear there is all sorts of self-centeredness and wickedness and they just run over people like a steamroller. What's going on? There's going to be a temptation to doubt. There's going to be a temptation like we noticed last week to go, well, what good is all this patience? Might as well join them and envy it and crave it and go after it. There's going to be all sorts of, of temptations that would weaken or divide our heart, make us double-minded. Yet he says, strengthen, establish your hearts. It's an active verb, by the way, church family, which means this. You and I have to take action to strengthen and establish our hearts. You and I will not casually drift from inactivity into a place of strength. We're not going to wake up, oh, I'm feeling kind of weak, I'm feeling, man, I'm feeling kind of doubtful, is the Lord really just, is the Lord really going to… Guess what? You're not going to drift back into a place of your heart being strengthened. You're going to have to take action. It's why it's a command here with the utmost of urgency. How do you strengthen your heart, pastor? What do we do? Well, Simple, there's all sorts of things we can do. We abide in Christ by faith, turning or taking captive our thoughts, turning them to truth. We meditate on the word. We pray by the, by the direction of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, he says, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. He doesn't say just be patient until the Lord comes, but now he says, strengthen your hearts, establish your hearts, find that resolve because the Jesus is coming back any moment. Now you go, well, pastor, that was great. That was 2,000 years ago. We still hadn't come back. Misses the point. It misses the point. The reality, Scripture points us, by the way, the second coming of Christ in the New Testament, there's over 300 verses that refer to the second coming of Christ, which means, let me make sure I've got my number correct here so I don't, I don't say something wrong. And you go, well, pastor, that wasn't true. One out of every 13 verses between Matthew and Revelation is about the second coming of Christ. You want to know what the priority of the New Testament is? It's the gospel of Christ which saves, and it's the, the end result of that gospel, which is Jesus coming back. And the way that Scripture presents Jesus' return is that it truly, no one knows the date or time, it could happen right now. Or now. Or the moment you walk out of here. Or 
And because his return, there is an immediacy to Jesus' return. It is to grip as his children. If you are in Christ by grace through faith, you have responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you're a sinner, and that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on in your behalf that you can find salvation in him, not because you're born to a Christian family, not because you go to church, but because you respond to his offer of grace. If you are in Christ because of that response, if you are in Christ, washed in his blood, there is to be an immediacy that constrains every aspect of our life. How can I find strength in a world where maybe somebody, somebody over here didn't, just didn't like me? I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to be faithful to serve the Lord. Somebody just got a burr under their saddle and decided they didn't like me and they started saying all these nasty things about me. And, and I, I, I've, I said, okay, Lord, I, I'm not gonna treat that person. I'm not gonna go and repay blow for blow and go gossip behind their back, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna repay evil with good. I'm being patient, I'm trusting you, but it happens again and it happens again. And here we are down the road. Years later, it's not a crime, it's not something I can take to the authorities, but this person seems to be, there doesn't seem to be the discipline of, of God in their life. We've been patient, but we're going to have to keep being patient. Why? How? By strengthening our heart. And how do we strengthen our heart? Ultimately, it's to fix our eyes and our hope, not on what the news tells us today, but on the fact that He is coming back and He is returning any moment now. Any moment now, He is coming back. And by the way, when you face that moment where you're in that suffering and you're finding it hard to to strengthen your heart in that, because it it's hard to imagine something in the future. Remember and look back and think of all of the miraculous things God has promised in His Word. The cross happened. The tomb is empty, which means He is coming back. Strengthen your hearts but it doesn't just say this. I love James. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, gives James the insight to write in the most practical of ways. Look what he says to these believers who are facing suffering. Now he says this, do not complain, brothers and sisters, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Or, or you could render the verb this way, stop complaining against each other. There was a problem in the church as they are facing hardship where they were complaining, where that, that word complaining means less actually about how I'm verbalizing the complaint and refers far more internally to a feeling of dissatisfaction and personal irritation at each other. It involves a feeling of criticism and fault-finding directed against each other. It, It becomes a smoldering resentment that displays itself in an antagonism to each other. You see, that's what that word complain means. It literally means to groan or to sigh. And certainly it manifests itself verbally but the focus of the verb is less on how it comes out of our mouth and more the feeling that's behind it. And it points at this truth. Here's the irony. We see this all over the place. God intends, church family, for us to be a unified body. If you read Jesus' 
Final prayer before the cross, John 17, he prays and he says, Lord, the world has hated them because of me. They've accepted me, so the world's hated them. And then he says this, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. I'm not praying that you get them out and away from the hatred. Well, what is he praying? Read through the prayer, that they would be one, Father, just as you and I are one, that they would be marked by unity. It's why Paul says to as a church family to do everything to preserve the bond of unity. Now, we don't make unity. The Holy Spirit makes unity. And if we walk in the Spirit, by the Spirit, in humility, God will produce His unity amongst us, and we will be bound in that unity, and there will be a richness of fellowship which comes from the Holy Spirit which you talk about a way to endure suffering as we live in a world who opposes more and more everything we believe, we do it together. Which is why one of the major ways God is go- that, that, the, that the enemy is going to attack the people of God who believe the truth of God, who are willing to do ministry for God, is going to be through petty irritation with each other that boils up into divisions and fractions, factions, not fractions. Those probably cause antagonism for some of you too. Factions amongst us to divide us, to break unity. It says, do not complain. Don't hold this bitter resentment towards each other. Let go. Listen, here's here's the real reality, church family. We are actively praying that God would revive our hearts, that God would bring an awakening in our community. We want God to use us as a church, as individuals and as a body. We want God to move. And be sure of this, church family, if God chooses to do things through us, we will face opposition, spiritual and physical. And be sure of this, the far greater danger to our church is not the threat of what that opposition is physically, it's going to be the fracturing, it's going to be getting irritated with one another. Well, I can't believe that person wore that today, or, or I can't believe that, that, that they, the staff planned that at that time, or I can't, and all, whatever it may be, whatever kind of things that are there, it can be so many, it's going to be that which would take us down like it has so many churches before. It's going to be that. I, I see it all the time. We, um, I won't give you, I, I see it all the time nationally amongst churches. Well, I don't like one thing about, now listen, I'm not talking about legit cases of where a pastor spoken heresy, all right? We're not going to support heresy. Just be clear. We're going to believe the truth. That's the prerequisite. But how many times have I seen, well, that pastor preaches truth, but he, he differs on this one thing, so I'm going to call him, he's a, he's a moderate. It's gone on in our current Southern Baptist Convention. I can't believe that current president. He, he's a moderate. I've met the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention. If he's a moderate, then Ronald Reagan was a communist. <laughs> but we allow personal irritations to drive us more than we do truth. Now, could there be something that comes up between two people where we're going to have to talk through it and work it out and come to a place of forgiveness and reconciliation? Absolutely. I think that's just the reality of if you get more than one person in a room, at some point there's going to be something like that. But there's a way to handle that in Christ 
that is reconciliatory versus a way that is just driven by a pettiness. And look what it says. He says, cut it out, stop doing it. Why? So that you may not be judged. He wants us to suffer well. And he says, behold, the judge is standing right at the door, which means this. The judge isn't sitting in the office. He's about to walk through the door, so cut it out. Or maybe to put it this way, for some of you growing up, you were a kid and you were doing something wrong and you hadn't listened to mom all day long and then mom says, you better cut it out, dad's about to be home. (laughs) But then I want you to drop down with me, look at verse 12. He gives one more thing and it's interesting what he says. He says, but above all, he's already told us to be patient, to strengthen our hearts, not to complain against each other. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so you may not fall under judgment. Now here's what he says simply. He, he, he quotes almost directly from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus condemns oath-taking. Now what do we mean by oath-taking? What we don't mean is if you get called to go testify in a legal court and you get told, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's not what they're talking about. What they are talking about was in their society, if you, if you took an oath in God's name, typically with the idea of, Lord, I promise if you will just do this, I will do this, otherwise you can make my life horrible. If you took an oath in God's name, it was binding upon you, and Scripture's really clear, don't make foolhardy oaths in God's name. In fact, one of the judges in the book of Judges makes a foolhardy oath in God's name. But there's another aspect of taking oaths. If you made an oath by by something less than God's name. What the Pharisees were good at and what had become culturally acceptable was finding ways to to make your words just right to leave little escape hatches. I promise by such and such that I will do this and this unless this situation comes up. And essentially what it is, it's this. It's, It's trying to affirm something as true when in reality what you're actually saying is all manipulative and a lie. Here's what he's saying, real simply, church family. And it's interesting, right? He's talking to people who are suffering. Why does speech keep coming up? Because how we talk is a reflection of our hearts presently. And this is what he says. He says, your yes be yes, command by the way, and your no be no, meaning this, mean what you say, Say what you mean. Deal with the consequences of speaking the truth. Say what you say, or say what you mean. Mean what you say. Accept the consequences of honesty. Here's the reality, church family. If we are being manipulative or dishonest or finding ways to twist our words, the the, the scripture is clear today. Stop it immediately. Means in our invitation time in a second, you, you pray and say, Lord, I am so sorry that that is me. It cannot be. Because James says, above all, cut this out. It means church family and hardship, opposition, suffering will us, pressure us to cheapen our words. Maybe it's because we know if we're asked that question, well, do you believe that God, that, do you believe that human beings can only be male or female based on their biology at birth? And you say, yes you're going to get attacked. Or you could find some way to be political and say a whole bunch of things that say nothing and neither affirm or deny. 
Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Deal with the consequences of speaking truth. Because we are, not a peop- we are not a people of falsehood. We are children of the light. We are children of the truth. It doesn't mean we can't be shrewd with our words, but we must never be deceptive with our words, whether it's how we are promising to take care of one another or how we are answering a lost world. Now you say, oh, pastor, okay, so four things in response to suffering, patience, strengthen your heart, don't com- cut out the complaining against each other, don't, don't be manipulative with my words, be honest, be transparent with what I say, yes. Well, pastor, what does that look like? Well, he actually gives us the example. Look with me back in verse 10. As an example, brothers and sisters, of suffering and patience, if you want to see what these things look like lived out, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Here's what he says. You want to see it played out? He says, take the example of the prophets. And take, by the way there, when he says take, it's not a suggestion. It's actually a command in the most urgent way. It says, church family, you pay attention and don't just pay attention and give lip service but pay attention to the example of their lives. Pay attention to how they live their lives. Pay attention to, to how God dealt with them in their lives. Pay attention to how they finished their lives. Pay attention so you follow the same example. So who are the prophets? The prophets, church family, were, were called by God. The power of God and the favor of God rested upon them, yet they suffered greatly, even at the hands of their own people who claimed the same God as Lord. They understood their purpose was not a life of wanton pleasure and luxury. It was not to cater to the rich, the powerful, the religious. They were called to complete and total faithfulness to the Lord in no different way than you and I as children of God are. They never, in response to their suffering, ever called for violent revolution and trading blow for blow. In fact, they actually cried against it. Go read Jeremiah when Babylon comes in and all the kings are going, no, we're going to fight them back. And Jeremiah says, nope, this is God's discipline. Just accept it. Instead, what they did, though, and this is why they're interesting as examples of patience. Patience didn't mean fighting back, but patience did also not mean keeping quiet because the prophets did not hesitate to pronounce God's will in every matter to the matters of their day. They didn't hesitate to pronounce God's just judgment upon wickedness, whether that was an individual or, or, or a kingdom. And they didn't hesitate to pronounce the fact that God would vindicate the righteous and, and, and reward the faithfulness. Their, their example of, of patience and suffering, their example tells us, church family, that part of what it means to be patient and strengthen our heart as we live in a world where we will suffer personal opposition, where we will suffer opposition for our faith, where we will find hardship, that part of what it means to, to suffer with patience and strengthening our hearts is rather than using our words to manipulate or using our words to complain against one another, we use our words to speak the truth. It means we stand where Jesus stands, we say what Jesus says, and we say what he says how he said it, which means with truth and gentleness, with clarity and kindness, So that if someone is turned off to the truth, they are turned off to Jesus, not turned off because we failed to represent Him correctly. 
It says the prophets are the example. You follow their example. And then, and then it gives a specific example. It says Job, isn't that interesting? We wouldn't necessarily put Job as a prophet, but he says, but Job, you've heard of the endurance of Job. Now it's interesting, the endurance of Job. How, how did Job endure? Well, Job, if you know the story, he suffered the loss of everything in his life, save his wife who was constantly after him to reject Jesus and his, his own very life. Even his own body came under assault. Yet if you read the entire book of Job, Job wrestles, Job struggles, but Job never rejects and denies God. Nor in the midst of his wrestling with not understanding, God, I know you're just, I know that I have not done something to earn this, but I can't reconcile. In all of his wrestling, he also resists the temptation to cheapen truth and make false statements about God unlike his friends. And when God shows up, by the way, it doesn't say God rebuked Job, it says God answered Job. It was a strong answer. And Job's response was absolute humility. In contrast to his buddies, whom God rebukes. And Job's example says this, here's the reality, church family, you're going to experience things, we are going to experience things that are hard to grasp. We're going to experience things that cause, for some of us, really deep, hard, challenging, painful questions. God, I know that you are, I know that, I know that you are just. I know that you, you look upon these, this wickedness that's in society and, and you don't approve. I'm praying that you would move, but not only are you not moving, now, now I'm facing sorrow. By, by the way, I, I mentioned the early example for sharing your testimony. There's a young man in Malta who for years lived ensnared to homosexuality, came to faith in Christ, God began to work through him, brought complete and total uh, restoration from that. He was asked on a podcast not to, not to plug, hey, come to this church, or come to, just to share what God did in your life. That's all he did, and now the Maltese government is coming against him with prison. You could think of him, God, you've brought, I, I've responded in repentance. God, I, I'm being bold to proclaim your word, and now I'm facing jail time. There's gonna be times there are hard questions and the fact that Job is given as an example of endurance means God is not scared by you and I as his children facing hardship and having hard questions. He knows we're but dust, he knows we're human. In fact, the wise among us will take our questions, will take our complaints to the Lord because we do believe he is who he says he is even when we struggle to see the light. You see, Job's example, what Job didn't do, Job asked hard questions, Job struggled absolutely, but Job never quit who his Lord was, is. And so must we. And look what it says here. It says two things. It says you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. And looking at the examples of the prophets and in Job's life, you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that God deals with his children with mercy and compassion. Sometimes it's hard to see that mercy and compassion, especially when we're suffering. How is that mercy? How is that compassion? We'll come back to that, but look at this too. Look at what he says. We count those blessed who endured. Here's the irony, church family. We will look and go, oh man, what, what, a, what an incredible, 
woman of God, Corey Ten Boone. What, what an amazing, I can't imagine what it would be like to have the relationship God. Look at Corey Ten Boom. Oh, but Lord, please don't ever let me walk her path. Oh man, Jim Elliott gave his life up, gave his life up for Jesus. What, oh my goodness, we celebrate these heroes of the faith and then we go, oh, but Lord, please not me. We give lip service to wanting to be blessed of God and used by God, but then when it comes down to what it might actually cost us, we're quick to backpedal. Even though if we pay attention to their examples, even in the examples that end in the agony of death, we see the reward of what God has done in and through their life and the fact that He sets it right when He returns. We see that the Lord's dealings is full of mercy and compassion. Church family, we must not pay lip service but walk in the example of the prophets. We must set ourselves to be faithful to Jesus, to entrust the vindication of our lives to Jesus, to stand where He stands on all issues regardless of the cost, to speak what He says, how He says it regardless of the cost to live in patience, endurance, in unity as far as it depends upon us as individuals, to do it with honest tongues. And as we do it, church family, we will know hardship, but we will also come to know the true sufficiency of His grace. We will come to know the freshness of His mercies, the depths of His compassion, the magnitude of his love, the richness of the fellowship of his sufferings. And like Paul who said in my last trial, I stood alone except that Jesus stood with me. We will know the fellowship of his sufferings because he is a God who deals with us in compassion and mercy. He is a God who will deal justly with all wickedness. He is a God who is on his way back any moment now. And church family, I can't predict what the days and weeks and months will come in terms of our society, but regardless of what comes or does not come, Here's the call with which we are to live by. Because while I don't know where our society is headed one way or the other, I do know that my Lord is coming back. Let's pray. Father, we move now into this time of invitation. And, And Lord, this passage, I think, is paramount for our lives. From my vantage point, I don't expect the world to get a whole lot better. Doesn't mean something can't happen and a movement of you can't take place. I also know from a human standpoint, it's hard to endure suffering without either wanting to take matters into my own hands, give in and join, or fall into depression because stuff doesn't seem to be getting better. Yet, Lord, here you outline for us how we're to walk. So Jesus, for for me and for all of my brothers and sisters in this room and joining us online, wherever you need to convict us, may we heed your conviction. May we repent where we've been weak. May we establish and strengthen our hearts in you. And may we really reconcile ourselves in light of your return. And Lord, for any friends in this room or watching online that do not know you, 
Maybe they've walked in, they never have known you. They just happened to walk in the church today. Maybe they've prayed a prayer somewhere along the way, but they, they prayed a prayer just because it was the thing to do, not because there was any real conviction of their sin and need for your salvation. Lord, if they've got questions, may they step forward and ask. If their heart's ready, may today be the day of salvation. Lord, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.